question for today is, sir, how many words does it take to completely discount someone's role in life? A paragraph? A compound sentence? I, th- I think it can be done a whole lot quicker than that. Don't buy a used car from him, right? Boy, you just did him. Uh, that's seven words. Or um, he's a snake oil salesman. That's four or five, depending on how you count the hyphenated word. It was once uh, derisively said of me by one of my parents that you'll never be anything but a ditch digger. Okay? Well, I show them I'm a lifelong carpenter. And actually, being a ditch digger is not the worst thing in life. In fact, all, worth, all work is worthwhile, but ditch digging. And I, by that, I do not mean an excavation contractor. Okay? I don't mean operator of heavy machinery, but a ditch digger. Did you know, first of all, they, a union ditch digger... Uh, is required, or union laborers, required on any union construction job. They're only allowed to touch the implement of, we once asked one to hand us a hammer on a job when I was a union contractor. He said, I can't touch a hammer. And he couldn't, by union law, he could not hand us a hammer on the job. His tool was a shovel. And the thing about it is, A union laborer has like the best retirement in construction. And you might say, why is that? Well, laborer is an entry-level job. They still pay their dues in, but most laborers leave the union before their pension vests. So what do they have? This huge pension pile just sitting there for the few people who make 25 years in the trade. So... They have a really good retirement when they get out, set for life at, did they start when they were 17? Set for life at 42. So, don't run down ditch diggers. I was also once called, to my face, by the way, and I was mentioning this recently at a prayer meeting, a dirtbag carpenter. Okay? And, um, You might think that that was an insult, and maybe it was meant as one, but I wasn't being called a dirtbag. It was a description of my trade. I was taking, and uh, Rob and I brought it for you, I was taking a tour of a harpsichord shop by the foremost harpsichord maker in the United States, a guy named John Phillips. I brought you a selection of his harpsichords that I printed up. They didn't come out in color, and that's a shame. But anyway... He was giving Aaron and I a tour, and my sister, who owns his, some of his, one of his harpsichords, but giving us a trade, and my sister very brightly during the middle of this said, oh, my brother's a carpenter too, and I sort of thought, oh, thanks a lot, Linda, you know, I'm going through this immaculate harpsichord shop where this guy is doing fabulous work, and, and my sister said, oh, my brother's a carpenter, and so the harpsichord builder turned to me and said, Oh, what kind of carpentry do you do? And I said, well, I do foundations and houses. And he said, oh, you're a dirtbag carpenter. And by that, and there is nothing wrong with it, because every day if I'm doing a foundation, when I climb out of the trenches after setting forms, 
I've got to take my dirt, my dirt bag. I've got to take my carpenter bag, turn it upside down, and get the dirt out because you're working in a trench. Being called a dirt bag carpenter wasn't probably the worst thing I've ever been called in my life. So far in the sermon, I have managed to denigrate not just ditch diggers and carpenters, but used car salesmen, uh, purveyors of snake oil, and we're only getting started here. As we've seen, as we've gone through the defense of Stephen here in Acts, he's accusing not just the Jews of his day, but the Jewish nation through all of its history of rejecting God's prophets sent to his people. As Stephen's As Stephen is speaking in uh, AD 33 or so, Moses is not just the most famous person to have lived, but he's most important as well to have ever lived in the history of the world. He is revered among the Hebrew people. Remember that one of the charges that Stephen is defending himself against before the Sanhedrin is blasphemy against Moses. And that's the last thing that Stephen means to do. Stephen here is going to show in just how few words the Israelites can totally disrespect Moses. I dislike the word disrespect, by the way. It reminds me of the shorthand dissing. Um, but but how in how few words the Israeli people, the Israelites, would disrespect Moses. Um, we're looking at Acts 7.30 through 40 today. I know it says 52, but as usual, I didn't get anywhere near where we're going. And we're really not paying much attention to 30 through 34 either because I've covered it previously. But I will read that uh, to bring you all up to speed. Now, when 40 years had passed, and this is Stephen speaking before the Sanhedrin, an angel appeared to him, Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. Verse 35 says, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, which we covered last week? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. 
saying to Moses, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. As for this fellow Moses, we're going to work backward, and you might always say I preach a little backwards. We're going to work backward through this today. We're going to start here at verse 40b. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Don't you just love that? As for this fellow Moses, it's like Moses was just wandering through Egypt one day, and three million people decided to follow along behind him and head for the promised land. As for this fellow Moses, like they didn't know who he was, like they didn't know he was Pharaoh's grandson. He may have been gone some 40 years at this point, but they knew who Moses was. Besides that, they say they don't know what became of him. Okay? How can they not know what became of Moses? Why, he just wandered away. No, They knew exactly where Moses had gone. God had summoned him to the top of Mount Sinai to talk to him face to face. They know that because of the rumbling of the thunder, God's voice from Mount Sinai. They know from the flashing of lightning off the mountain, the reflection of God's glory. They know exactly where Moses is because they have been halfway up the mountain and heard God speaking themselves. They know exactly where Moses is And they don't like it. And why not? Well, let's go to verse 39. Verse 39 says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts turned to Egypt. I would say rather, though their hearts turned to Egypt, the Israelites preferred slavery in Egypt to salvation through God. Why would they want slavery? Okay, question for today. We know that this world we live in would rather be a slave to sin than to worship God. Why is that? This is the exact same thing the Israelites wanted. Slavery rather than God. Our hearts turn away from God to sin. Their hearts from God to Egypt. The operating motive here is to turn away from God. Verse 40 says, 41b, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. Now, don't think that the Hebrews were fooled. They knew Aaron could not make real gods for them to follow. Moses is on the mountain talking to God. Hebrews in their camp, know where Moses is, and they say to Aaron, Moses' brother, make for us gods of gold for us to follow. They did not want a real God. Make no mistake about it. They did not want a real God. They wanted what they'd always had, which is a fake God. Now, why would they want a fake God? It's because you don't have to obey fake gods, right? 
If a God is fake, if you know that God is fake, if you watched Aaron make him out of gold, you know that he's just an idol made of gold. You don't have to obey that God. They wanted to go back to Egypt because then they wouldn't have to obey God any longer. You can do anything you want and say you're obeying the gods because there is no accountability or responsibility. And yet, at that very moment, God is inscribing His law in stone. Don't you, don't you hate that? That the law is inscribed in stone by God's own finger on the mountain and Moses is going to carry it down to these people who have just constructed idols of gold because they don't want accountability or responsibility, the one thing that God is going to completely give them. They truly don't want any part of that. It's better to be a slave to sin in our days. It's better to be a slave to Egypt than to obey God. Verse 38c, going backwards, says, He received living oracles to give to us. Stephen does not sound like one who is committing uh, blaspheming Moses here. He says, Moses is giving the living word to the Jews. Living oracles, which just means the living words. He is giving them the living word. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is what a living oracle does. It pierces you. It pierces the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. The Hebrews did not want any part of that either, any more than the world today wants any part of God. The world we live in would rather believe that a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man. The world today loves the darkness and hates the light. The pastor that I became a Christian underneath, he said, God is light and I might have asked the reason why that is. And he said, because the closer you come to the light, the darker you appear to yourself. If you shine a light on something, you see the darkness that was there. And he said, he said people do not prefer the light. They want the darkness. They want to believe what they want to believe. They do not want the truth. This is why the, well, they love the darkness and they hate the light. They call evil good and good evil. This could have been written yesterday. That is why the Israelites turned in their hearts back to Egypt. And why our world also has today turned their hearts back to Egypt. Besides, who is this Moses fellow anyway? As we asked last week, 
who died and made him ruler, right? Verse 38 says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. Okay, Moses spoke to the angel of the Lord in the tabernacle and God on Mount Sinai. But actually, if in your heart you're already in Egypt, there is nothing that will bring you back under your own power. You will not come back to God if your heart is in Egypt. If you're already back in Egypt, really nothing that God does, and I do emphasize the word does, physically, will bring you back. The Hebrews had seen the signs that Moses had done in Egypt, right? They had seen him stand up to Pharaoh. They had lived through the plagues Moses brought down on Egypt to free the Hebrews. They had traveled with Moses as they gathered their possessions. They had stood on the banks of the Red Sea as the Egyptian army swept down upon them. If the Hebrew nation ended right there on the shore, they watched as Moses raised his arms and parted the sea and they crossed safely on dry ground. They watched as the sea returned to its bed, swallowing the Egyptian army and finally ending Pharaoh's madness. In the desert, dying of thirst, they watched as Moses drew water from a rock and hungry, saw God supply quail and then manna from heaven, supplying all their needs. And still their hearts turned back to their slavery in Egypt. What more could God have done to show the world his power? What more can God do to bring salvation to those wandering in the desert of sin? Stephen brings the Sanhedrin to God's conclusion in Moses' words in verse 37. He says, This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now Moses is not here saying that God will raise up a type of Moses. We looked at last week how Moses was a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ to come. Moses is not saying that there will be a type of Moses coming. Stephen says this to the Sanhedrin, knowing that those learned scholars would know exactly what he was talking about. After all, even the common people in the countryside knew the words of Moses. After Jesus had multiplied the loaves and fishes to feed the 5,000, the people understood what had happened. This was not some potluck where everyone shared, and I've heard it described as that. Everybody had brought their own food because they were going to be on the seashore, and they didn't bring their food, and, and no. They didn't bring food. That's the whole point of the story. It was not a potluck. Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes and and fed everyone who was there. 
John 6.14 tells us, when the people saw the sign that he had done, okay, they weren't fooled by postmodern criticism of the act. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. If the Jewish peasants on the side of the lake knew the signs that were to come and would be the signs of the Messiah, then you know that the Pharisees and the um, Sanhedrin knew that also. They understood that Moses' prophecy was not about a type of Moses, a prophet in the likeness of Moses. We know that because the coming Messiah was to set up his kingdom. Uh, John 6.15 continues, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. This is the very next verse. verse. I should read them together. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people knew exactly who Jesus was and were prepared not to take no for an answer. They were going to force the Messiah to take his kingdom, it says. He wasn't the new Moses. He was the long-awaited Messiah, king of Israel. Stephen makes this point to the Sanhedrin. Did they understand his implication? Uh, well, we know they did. Uh, we'll see next Next week or the week after, exactly how we know that they uh, understood what Stephen was saying. So, what exactly does it take for God to get man's attention? Apparently, man will not change his ways until God changes his heart. All of Moses' signs and wonders could not keep the Israelites from longing for their slavery. Now, I started out this message with examples of how to dismiss someone in the fewest words possible. You know, use car salesmen, snake oil, uh, ditch digger, dirtbag carpenter. We noticed all the ways we worked all the way to God's appointed savior for the Jewish nation in Egypt, this fellow Moses. How many words did it take the authorities to dismiss Jesus, who did greater works than even Moses. Okay? So, we've got Moses, the greatest man who ever lived, and it's this fellow Moses, you know. We don't know where he got off to. So what did they do with Jesus when he showed up? In Matthew 13, Jesus went out to the seaside and taught a great crowd. He taught them in parables. The parable of the sower. The parable of the weeds. The mustard seed. Of hidden treasure. Of the pearl of great price. Matthew 13 verse 53 through 54 tells us, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get 
this wisdom and these mighty works. Now, if the elites of Jesus' day had stopped there, it might have been seen as a marveling, as a wondering. Where did this come from? How did he come up with this teaching? But then came the next six words. So they managed to do it in six words. Because verse 55 says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Hmm. Hey. Isn't his father a dirtbag carpenter? Isn't he a dirtbag carpenter? He followed in his father's footsteps. Verse 55 through 56 continues. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? really asking a question here. They were running through the commonplace facts of his life to make sure that everybody knew that he was not who they thought he was. He was a carpenter. His dad was a carpenter. There's his mother Mary. Here's his brothers. His sisters here among us. He cannot be a teacher because we know him. Right? We know who he is. We know he's not a teacher. We know his mother. And his sisters and his brothers. He can't be anyone special because we know who he is and he is not one of us. He's not an elite. Okay? He's not tucked away in the temple. Hobnobbing with all the other elites, the high priests and the Pharisees. He's just a carpenter and the son of a carpenter. His clothes are poor and his feet are dirty. Okay? They know who Jesus is simply by that. And he's not one of them. And still today the elite of our day take offense at him. And I know I don't have to tell you this because because the elite of this day take offense at you too. Okay? You might be a scientist, Robin, or a nurse. You might be a homemaker or a dirtbag carpenter like me, okay? The world takes offense at you because you're not like them. You're not part of them. This world, as they say, is not your home and you know it. Your thoughts are not their thoughts. I close with Proverbs 9, 9 through 10. And because I seem to be teaching scripture in reverse order today, let's start with verse 10 of Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The elite of today are not wise. I could stop there. I don't really have to explain that any further than that. The elite of today are not wise. Okay? 
because they have no fear of the Lord. The elite of Jesus' day rejected him for the same reason. They had no wisdom, no knowledge of the Holy One. Verse 9, working backwards, says, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The elite of Jesus' day, and our day, both have this in common. They do not wish to be wise. They cling to their own perception of wisdom, man's perception of wisdom. They do not want to cross over to God's promised land. They want to turn back to Egypt and to sin. They both want to turn back to the slavery that the rejection of God promises. And for the life of me, I still don't understand why. Maybe it's because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's close in prayer. Lord, this entire world lives in the land of slavery as surely as though they're in ancient Egypt with the Hebrews making bricks for the pyramids. Their hearts reject you. Therefore, they reject wisdom. Their hearts turn back to slavery and the slavery of sin. Lord, they reject you and they reject us along with you. And we know it and we see it in their every action, their every word, and their every deed. Lord, only you can change the heart of men. Only you can draw man to you. You know that they rejected the prophets, as Stephen said. You know they rejected Jesus, as we have seen. You know that soon in this passage they will stone Stephen for speaking the truth. Man does not want truth. He does not want wisdom. He wants the comfortableness of following false gods who demand nothing of him. Lord, I pray you will call all people to your son, that they will fear the Lord and begin to have wisdom. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.